Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. Anush is on holiday this week. I'm Alva. I'm Stephen. And this week we discuss the European Super League and football's uh, gendered hold on our national discourse. And you ask us, why can't the United Kingdom attract a higher quality of mayoral candidate? So, Alva, this is the revenge, the revenge of the monarchy episode. <laughs> so for those of you who've missed the news, 12 of... Europe's most successful football clubs, or rather 11 of Europe's most successful football clubs and Tottenham Hotspur, have announced their intention to form a new European Super League where they would play midweek in a tournament in which none of the 12 members could be relegated or kicked out. The theory is they'd continue to accrue vast sums of money. Um, This would obviously distort domestic competition, but of course the other problem uh, is the because teams wouldn't be relegated, uh, there would be few consequences for failure and mismanagement to the extent there are sufficient consequences for that in football already. So I think there's a lot that's interesting about that. Uh, uh, it's, I'm touching on some of the themes in the politics column this week, and I did so in our morning email. So I think there's possibly an argument that that's, that's quite enough. Um, but I think the interesting thing for me, at least, is that we have a government which it kind of nods at the idea that it's it's sort of against um, sort of globalization and free markets, red and tooth and claw. And then sometimes it kind of actually meets that posturing with some policy. And then sometimes it kind of goes completely the other way. And this is, you know, because of uh, football's huge cultural footprint, because of its dominance, uh, particularly among men, because of, you know, essentially because of the patriarchy, right? Like this is uh, yeah, the most high profile test of whether or not the government actually buys any of that stuff about the left behind globalization, a sense of place, right? There will never be a more visible moment of, but look, when push comes to shove, do you actually care about the plight of Wolverhampton Wanderers? Or is that actually just like a thing that you, you sort of posture at while basically having a policy of, you know, money for London, culture war for everyone else outside of it? That's what I think is interesting about it. But I think the other thing which is interesting about it, which you've sort of used as a jumping off piece for a, a very powerful piece, Alva, is, is the way that um, football alone, I think, of of any of, um, I was about to say any of the arts, and I think the fact that I hesitated over that shows a variety of interesting things about the way it's, it's treated and gendered. But something of this scale is happening to the arts all the time because of COVID. Yet we kind of feel we have to apologise for talking about it. 
I thought the interesting thing for us to talk about would be um, how and why football is different and how that makes us feel. Mm, yeah, I think the way you um, you framed this as the, the, the revenge episode for when I made us talk about the monarchy is well observed. Um, because, yeah, as you say, I... I mean, I'm not really a football fan. I'm the daughter of a huge football fan. So um, even though it has definitely never been apparent in any of our conversations, Stephen, I actually do know quite a bit about football, as demonstrated when I was, I think, 11 at school. And our headmaster said, oh, here's a quiz question for the boys. Um, what football team plays at the Valley? And I was the only person who knew it was Charleston Athletic. Um, but I'm really... Um, yeah, I explored today my kind of my quite, quite weird and weirdly strong feelings for how much I hate football. Um, because, yeah, as you say, it's not really so much about this story in particular. I, I think it's the the peculiar place of football in public life and in our public conversation that I think that we don't sort of acknowledge quite how gendered it is I know that you in your introduction very much did acknowledge that but I think that you know in an era where women of course do watch and play football and compete internationally in football um I don't think that the the fact that like the vast majority of women in the UK never watch football (laughs) polling shows I don't think that that is really reflected in the way that we cover it as something of kind of universal importance and um, significance. And I think it's a rare thing in, I think especially in politics and journalism, which does so depend on human relationships. It's just a rare thing that is, you know, is ultimately quite frivolous. I accept that a lot of money is involved, but it is, you know, ultimately a game for fun. Um, it's all made up. It's like, you know, it's for human enjoyment. It's not in any way essential. Something ultimately a little bit frivolous um is accorded quite a lot of seriousness i think because of its gendered impact that there's something about the way men can talk about geopolitics and economics and football um and you know you expect a, a politician typically a male politician to support a team and that's a sort of a sign of having a lighter side rather than a frivolous side um in a way that I think is kind of difficult to um it's kind of difficult to find an equivalent for women and I actually I actually think that this is a rare example where I suppose like the point with the patriarchy is that ultimately you can't really see it um you um like the point is that you know whether you're a man or a woman even if as a woman you kind of realize that over and over again you're in conversations where you aren't really able to contribute about football um you still end up not quite seeing quite how much news and public conversation is skewed towards men's interests which are conveyed as universal whereas women's interests are kind of seen as niche so I'm not saying that women's interests would never be a big story in the same way um but I think that there would be an element of apology for that which there certainly isn't with a story like this right the, the thing I always think is interesting and I was uh, I was trying and failing to find the uh, article where uh, Anna Leskovich made this point a while ago a long time ago actually um about um 
this way that a certain type of person will act as if being uninterested in let's take an example of someone who are whose music I, I very much enjoy um taylor swift or someone who i'm only nebulously aware of because uh one of them used to be married to kanye west um the kardashians right it's a way of people like oh look i'm Look, look at me, I'm going to demonstrate I'm an intellectual, not by talking about something I'm, I am interested in, but by talking about something I'm not interested in. Um, and yeah, some people do do that at the margins about football, but, you know, I mean, they always have a rubbish time doing it because it's a hegemonic interest. And, it, and as you, exactly as you say, right, if a politician talks about how they follow football and they're interested in football, it, it's, you know, it's them being, you know, interesting, multidimensioned, multifaceted. Whereas there are very few bits of um, popular culture um, that are um, that are kind of treated with sort of equivalent weight and people kind of have to apologise for them a lot more. And the that's before you get into, uh, you know, the stuff you touch on really brilliantly in the piece about the ways that it um facilitates a kind of like close you know kind of closed shop um within working conversations because um you know people are kind of automatically excluded or included in the in the sign of you know the football chat as it were um you know i mean i have an ancestral arsenal fanness right then my granddad started supporting Arsenal as a teenager because he they lived in the North London area and he didn't want to support Spurs because that was like the stereotype. He consciously did not want to support the sort of more like avowedly Jewish team. Although actually we do have more Jewish fans as well as more FA Cups, more league titles, just basically more everything really than Spurs. But um but the main reason why I started to follow um, Arsenal closely was it was just, it started out first just like, it's like, it, it is just a way to have a much easier, easier and better quality of life if you're a bloke. And indeed also I actually think it is, which does come back to the sort of the patriarchy point. It's an easier way to have a better quality of life if you're a woman too, right? It's just that even if you do follow football, if you're a woman, you have to um, navigate the, and notice how I'm using this verbless sentence to ignore the fact that I have, that you've worked for me for how long now? And I did not know that your um, your dad followed football. Really? I feel like it must have come up because I'm actually an, an ancestral Dundee United fan. Dundee United because they were great in the 80s and also Crusaders Football Club in Belfast. I have actually been to see them play. So I suppose I'm... Um, it's interesting kind of interrogating my feelings on this because I actually love the way my dad loves football. And he's like, you know, he's a real like goes to pro like football program fairs and has been to like, most of the football grounds in the UK and Ireland and quite a lot in Europe too. Um, I have a lot of, of time for people sincerely enjoying things like that and getting a lot of pleasure out of them and the community that that creates and so on. And there are lots of things about football that fascinate me, particularly around contemporary masculinity. So it's not really to say that I have no time for it whatsoever. I think it's actually what I dislike is the role that 
football now plays in my life not particularly with you because um like for every comment that you make about football I feel like there are three apologies <laughs> any any brief football analogy um you clearly feel very bad about it it's more I think you know if you're if you're sitting having a coffee with an MPE um and another political journalist comes along but before you know it they are talking about like the latest like Manchester United result and you're just sitting silently nodding along and I think it's like when that happens you know 10 times every day and you feel that it like you know on a tiny level that's completely inconsequential it's certainly not feminism's biggest battle but like uh, you know on a then on a macro level it just feels like a systematic way in which women are or women or people who don't conform to that um, sort of normative idea of masculinity, the people who don't really conform to that just end up, there ends up being a sort of pattern of exclusion um, of them from the kinds of social bonds that you create um, in journalism and in politics that are so important. And I remember um, Beth Rigby, the political editor of Sky, who's a, a great runner, um, said in an interview that she took up running partly because she found it to be a good substitute for football with politicians that she felt like she couldn't participate in that way so she found something else and so this is sort of a different cohort of MPs and journalists in Westminster who run and that feels a little bit less gendered to her um, but I, yeah I think I'm just I'm, I'm really struck it was actually because of this book um, which I read for, for my book club wouldn't have it wouldn't really be my thing otherwise, but um, it's a book by um, Caroline Criado Perez about the gender data gap. Um, she and I would normally not have exactly the same kind of feminism, but I read it for, for my book club and actually found it, it really ignited a kind of feminist rage on a very basic level that just a very normal kind of gender parity, um, the kind of the base, like the sort of, the bottom rung of the ladder for feminism is still not being met. And that, you know, I think there was a, there was a statistic that, that jumped out at me from my piece, which I mentioned in my piece from that book, um, that women make up only 24% of the people heard, um, read about or seen in newspaper, television and radio news. And I just feel like that's what football does, that it's a kind of, we think of it as something that's universally interesting to people and ignore the the quite gendered aspect of it um because really like our entire public conversation is so skewed away from women and women's interests that we can't even really see it um and so yeah i've i've i was feeling that today what when when the news was so much about football um I was just very conscious of how, you know, some people are football fans, plenty of people are, lots of people aren't, but that, you know, that doesn't fall equally. Um, and, and yeah, and then all, and then because of that kind of currency, it's particularly politically interesting because I think actually, as an aside, um, I think, you know, one of the, one of, Keir Starmer's rare 
universally popular selling points is that he is a genuine Arsenal fan and a season ticket holder. And that when, you know, when our former colleague Patrick Maguire profiled him for the New Statesman before he became Labour leader, the, you know, he was scratching under the surface of the man and the politician to see, you know, what really drives him. And, you know, a large part of what he uncovered is that, like, beyond the sincere politics, he really just is a man who likes to go to the pub and spend time with his family and and watch football and, you know, loves playing five-a-side, loves going to see matches. And that's a kind of a rare thing that so many, particularly men across the UK, share in. And it's, a, it's I think, a, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, Stephen. Like, it's a rare point where men of of different classes come together in an increasingly polarized society certainly i think it's something that my dad talks about like the the huge like the the cross section of northern irish society that he would see at a football match um i think it's a kind of rare way in in which british men forge forge connections um and um it's a kind of it's a kind of a leveler but also you know like the kind of the the social the, the role models it provides and the the kind of the rare route into a life of fame and wealth for like working class boys there aren't that many professions like that um the like the way I think the the place that football in particular plays within British society is really really interesting um it's just also you know quite gendered yeah, I think um, I think all of that's true, right? You know, yeah, and I, I'd like to make it clear I'm not a total fraud. When I first started following Arsenal, it was to make my life easier as a teenager rather than to like, give my. But yeah, like, but actually, the same the same dynamic than um, you know, like in my mid-teens, it's just like yeah, it's like yeah, I might have weird music tastes, but I also have strong opinions about the fact Ashley Cole is a bad person. Um, I, in case Ashley Cole or his lawyers listen to this podcast, I actually no longer think Ashley Cole is a bad person. Um, I have deeply revisionist opinions and think he was right. He was right to want more money, but yeah, like that started out being a way to kind of like sort of buy not actual social cachet, but at least get me out of negative figures into you know net a net zero approval rating, as it were. But then throughout life, it is a kind of way of um basically going hey let's have like our equivalent of an old school tie because um you know at university it was like yeah you might have like gone to like one of the like oldest and most famous private schools in the country you might be like related to like the prime minister of of you know an yeah the literal prime minister of a country um but we were all glad when chelsea got knocked out of the champions league um and so he's, it's, a fa- it's fascinating because it, it is simultaneously a great leveller while being a leveller which has a heavily gendered skew. And yes, um, some women do follow football, um, but the ways it's gendered, I think, are hugely demonstrated in the fact that when this, this scheme was announced, uh, the sort of afterthought is, oh, and we'll at some point, in due, it's, like, it's in due course. It's kind of like, women, we're aware they exist. At some point, we'll do something like this for women's clubs, which I mean... One, it's it's even more ridiculous uh, than, you know, this bunch of clubs would do that because basically with the exception of Arsenal, 
um, none of the uh, women's clubs affiliated to these 12 clubs have any type of real sort of continental pedigree. And even Arsenal's sort of, um, you know, kind of Champions League winning heroics in, in the women's game are sadly about a decade ago now. So it's kind of... the that even the kind of exception is still kind of shunted out of the conversation. Um, yeah, very few people went, oh, well, look, lads, if you're so interested in women's football, where's Leon in, like, this list of, of greats? Um, so, no, I think you're you're exactly right, both about the ways and it. It does have a, a uniquely sort of unifying uh, present if you can opt into it, but it also does... Um, its privileged position does also reflect on a number of other existing... Um, divide in society, which is why you should just become an Arsenal fan. It will make your life a lot easier. Um, also, I mean, you'll be in sync with my weird mood swings. Um, yeah, um, to disclose to listeners, um, Stephen has been very understanding at several points when I have filed a piece to him in the middle of an Arsenal match because I'm really not plugged into that whole thing. So it would actually make your life quite a lot easier as well, Stephen. Yeah, it would just <laughs> I became a fan. Be a huge improvement. Um, if, you know, there was never any risk of this thing has happened. It's just like, no, 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 news doesn't happen. Like, I'm sorry, it, it, like every head of state could be assassinated by alien invaders and, and the news station website could wait. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You ask us. And this question, actually, I realise, comes from an anonymous caller, which is, I'm genuinely fascinated as to how it is that New York has had figures as big as Bloomberg and Giuliani, and we, that is Londoners, have a relatively low quality of candidate. Which I thought was an interesting question in its own right, but I think is worth widening to um, the mayoral class as a whole. Um with the greatest of respect to the various candidates for Metro mayoralties, some of whom <clears throat> listen to this podcast, the most of the big figures who do them, um, with the exception of the Conservatives Andy Street, are people who have been big in Westminster and are bluntly on the downward slope. Um, some of them, you might argue, have successfully... Uh, I think Andy Burnham has successfully sort of re, yeah, kind of reignited the trajectory of his career uh, within the Labour Party, although the question of whether or not he can finesse that into a re-entry into Westminster politics is, is very is a, is a different one entirely. 
But yeah, I just think it's an interesting question. Like, why is it that um, that that you know, kind of big figures with with large careers are less inclined to run for for these posts? Yeah, I think it is so interesting. Um, I feel I often feel nervous when um readers or listeners um write in with a, an international comparative question because I feel like it exposes my ignorance on you know, meralties around the world and, and how they differ. Um, I feel like the, the fascinating thing, of course, is that the current prime minister used to be mayor of London. So in a quite important way, mayoralties are prominent and important roles or certainly don't preclude you being a huge big hitter politician. I feel like the... The big challenge is, I mean, I strangely, I don't really see any of the mayoralties. This is just my my frank view, and I think maybe many listeners will disagree. But my view is I don't really think of the mayors as huge political players in their own right, even though they sort of ought to be. So we only ever think of those roles as stepping stones or otherwise. We know when... David Cameron um, was in government. You know, his main paranoia was how Boris Johnson was going to get back into Westminster because then he would pose a real threat. But, you know, as mayor of London, David Cameron felt relatively safe with Andy Burnham, who is, as you say, has has improved his standing nationally um, within the past year, standing up for Manchester in the context of the pandemic. Um, the the big question for him is, you know, at what point will he leave the mayoralty to find a seat to stand again? It's the route back into Westminster that I think is really unclear for people in these mayoral seats. And I feel like I don't know about, enough about international politics to know whether um, whether it's whether it's similar in in other democracies the the route back into parliament from a mayor, from a mayoral seat is is just much more complicated um but i think that that i think that's the answer though it's that um you know you either you either win the mayoralty or you don't and do and like running involves giving up years of your life in politics um when you are probably not um, an MP and you're out of the Westminster system or, you know, out of the the devolved parliamentary system. And I think it's it's that. It's it's the it's the way it forces you out of the system and the way it would require a huge route in that means that most people don't think that it's a punt worth taking. Do you do you agree with that, Stephen? Is that kind of what you think the problem is? Um it, it, so I didn't really before you said you said that, and then I guess the thing I the thing I was thinking about it in terms of that question, right, is that obviously I like the, you know the the next um, you know hemp wearing bicycle loving um, green person love Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of mayor of Paris, who's shown real ambition with what that job can be done, and I've been thinking a lot. Well, why? Yeah, the kind of mystery of, of right. So let's take the most established mayoralty first, right? Sadiq Khan, who I, I'm sorry, 
it's it's very hard to to sustain the argument he is not the person who has out of the three incumbents the least impressive record of delivery is is going to be almost certainly the most electorally successful of the three and he also faces the least impressive um political you know that you know Steve Norris had been a secretary of state he has um, you know, his own ideas and opinions about how what good urbanism means from a centre-right perspective in a way that neither, you know, neither Zach Goldsmith or Sean Bailey at a very basic level are serious candidates for that role. Um, in the Metro Mayors, right, Ben Houchen, it is fair to say, surprised everyone by winning in 2017 and surprised ever, has surprised everyone by being a pretty effective mayor, right, which... Shows in some ways him having a good eye for the main chance. There were not many people who thought that that role was worth going for on the conservative side. He fought a slightly unorthodox campaign in lots of ways, but he's been a pretty effective mayor. But on the whole, right, you have a situation where the Labour Party under both Corbyn and Starmer seems essentially uninterested in the metro mayoralties. Um, yeah, so today Boris Johnson uh, has, early on the campaign trail, was unable to name the incumbent um, West of England mayor, who is a conservative, um, a conservative without much of a, a record, you know, called Kim Bowles, who's standing down this time. Now, that is a mayoralty which I, I think should be eminently winnable uh, for the Labour Party, partly because people, you know, these mayors do not have a, a particularly, um, yeah, have not been able to establish themselves in figures, partly because of the lack of interest in them. And I think the thing is, I think all of the incentives, not least weirdly, I think the one thing I would add is um, there's no off-ramp for these mayors. The difficulty in attracting a quality candidate is unless someone wants to um, wants to be mayor for life, um, it's one of those things where it's like you can leave by being defeated or you can leave by becoming a carpetbagger, right? Those are essentially the two ways out of being a metro mayor. And although I'm in general against term limits for most positions, I do think one way to get a better quality of candidate is essentially to build in a way that it's an option to be able to go, I've done this very impressive thing. Now I'm a, a candidate for high office. And in a, in a weird way, one of the reasons why I think that will become more, not less important, is if the global and local trend of cities becoming more inclined to vote for the parties of the left and the parties of the right being left behind continues, and I see no earthly reason to believe that it would not, um, the quality of the candidate issue is only going to become more acute because, like, now I mean I, I don't think Boris Johnson is a particularly, yeah, was, was was did not have a great record as mayor either. Did do some very good stuff with cycling, um, but his his main political asset was he able to go look. I'm someone who can win somewhere where we don't win all that often. But I think as cities become more left wing, they won't really be somewhere where you can say that because increasingly. Um, Conservatives just were like, yeah, I, I lost. Yeah, I, I did not become mayor. And, um, and Labour candidates won't be able to plausibly go, yeah, that win, that happened because of me. And so I think you therefore do need to, yeah, life is about incentives, right? It's about the incentives for parties to recruit well. We can talk about the fact that Labour in particular, I think, is not great at recruiting well. Um, we can talk about uh, incentives, but it's also incentives for those candidates one day recruit well to have somewhere else to go next that isn't just, you know, you are mayor for a thousand years until, you know, you're forced out in some way internally. And I do think that's the other part of the puzzle. 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and our political correspondent, Alva Ray. Our music is still Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you have a question for us, please email us at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.